But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered, or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on. Samwise Gamgee, in The Two Towers, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Welcome to Epigraphs. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And we really enjoyed our last conversation on on narrative, which you started with your theory that, if I can state it very simply, was something like any narrative that we were finding to deals with a lot of time. So any narrative that occurs over a long period of time is... Or is in itself a long narrative, because we included the Brothers Karamazov. That's right. Any any long narrative, either in the sense of the in, internal time or, ex, or the time taken to read the narrative, um, fundam- deals with justice. Mm-hmm. Deals with this, wrestles with the idea of justice. Just by, basically, by virtue of, by virtue of, haha, choosing where you end it. When, when you're talking about somebody who... Yes. Sees the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, actually, my wife and I were having a conversation over dinner about um, some uh, some famous historical photograph of a statue being toppled. And it's shown in in one country when it made the rounds in the news. It was shown really close up. And then in another country, it was in much, in, in some other countries, it was much further out. And you see that, in fact, there's no, no adoring crowds that are happy that the statue is being toppled. And she was just discussing how much of a difference... The those, framing makes. The framing makes. Yes. And, and so, you know, that's sort of the spatial versus the temporal. So, yeah, so we, so when we were talking about that, it started to kind of click with us, I think, that there's this relationship between good narrative and the cardinal virtues. Which, in case someone hasn't heard of those. They're prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And so these are, were, what, were they first kind of articulated in classical Greece? Is yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were, they, they're called the, the cardinal virtues because they are those virtues out of which the other virtues arise. So they, they contain them. They're sort of like the principal virtues. The overarching virtues. If you have those virtues, you're a virtuous man or right. woman. Right. And so there's all kinds of other things that we would recognize as virtue that are um, contained within them. So... A, a basic example of that to just show how broad these are would be something like filial piety the respect that you owe your parents that's part of the virtue of justice mm-hmm. right so these are very very broad things and prudence you know practical wisdom i think is is more or less how it's described yeah to know how to act rightly um yeah and so uh, and then you have so then you have so, fortitude just really quick briefly fortitude is is basically um, the thing that lets you carry out what you intend to do, right? So it would include things like um, being patient or being brave. Mm-hmm. Those are That's fortitude. And then temperance is, is something like self-moderation, right? So not drinking too much, not spending too much, um, not yelling at people, right? So it's something like ha- controlling your emotions and your passions and your appetites. Mm-hmm. So... So that's, that's, that's broadly the four of them. And, and, and my understanding is I've, I've heard at least St. Thomas Aquinas talking about them as being deeply interrelated. Yes. You don't just, you can't just have one. 
You have to you have to cultivate all of them if you're going to express them. And so it makes sense that when we when we started exploring one justice of them. In, yeah. the, in the form of narrative that the other ones would come up. And so I think last time the one that specifically came up was was fortitude, mm-hmm. which is where our epigraph came from as well today, that the people in these narratives kept going. Now, yes. interestingly, yeah. it occurs to me that that may be less of a player in some of the narratives that we would have included last time. So a narrative that takes a long time to read, but takes place over a short amount of time, wouldn't necessarily implicate the virtue of fortitude. I uh, Maybe. I. <laughs> well, except so, for the reader. Yeah, well, the reader needs fortitude. <laughs> the, the, reader, the reader does need fortitude. Okay, well, I mean, that's just an interesting observation right there, that uh, there's actually, there's a sense in which you need the virtues to read stories well. So it's not just that they cultivate them, but they actually necessitate them, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, think about, okay, so so I don't know if we ran through this, but the, the path that I've kind of heard is with these virtues, the way they interact together is that prudence shows you what you ought to do, right? In the sense of practical wisdom. How, these are the things you should do. And then justice is something like how what you owe to different people and things. And then you need fortitude and temperance to then carry those things out because we don't, we do for whatever, whatever your theory of whatever your anthropology is like, it's pretty clear that to everyone through all of history that people don't natural, they're not naturally inclined to act in every way as they ought. And so there's this, this, this regulation and this kind of bravery and fortitude and, and, and overcoming challenges. So then I think about, okay, so the brothers Karamazov, that's immediately one that comes to mind. Well, one is, you know, it's a good book and like there's this matter there's this aspect of prudence and recognizing that's a good book to read and that's not mm-hmm. and then say justice is something like what you need justice well justice is what makes you give attention to something that's good right so you reckon prudence lets you recognize this is a good story justice says a good story is something that i have like i should i should take it seriously like justice says, I owe, if I'm going to engage with the story, I owe it serious attention. And then because the Brothers Karamazov is very long, it takes fortitude yes. to carry through with it. And then if you're going to carry out this this arduous task of reading the Brothers Karamazov, you actually have to have temperance in your life. Because if you give up on the book and go and watch YouTube or television or talk to someone on the phone or, you know, all these the thousand distractions you could engage with, you're never going to, you're never going to finish it. And so you might say, well, I've got the, you know, I've got the fortitude to, to carry you. You might be willing to stick with it for six months, but if you're so intemperate that you can't sit down and read for more than 30 seconds, it doesn't matter how, how much you intend to do it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think with 30 seconds a day for six months, you should be able to get through it. <laughs> and well, if you would get anything <laughs> well, out of it, would you get anything out of it? Probably not. You would have forgotten what all the names, who's, yeah. Whose name goes to exactly. character. So that, I mean, that's interesting. It, like, there's a sense in which you have to be a virtuous person to be able to, at least on some level, to actually be able to read these stories. On some level, although you have in the past brought up the example of the concentration camp officers that would go off on retreats to discuss what we would recognize as truly great literature, and yeah. yet, I mean, perhaps you would... 
say that they are engaged in virtuous acts without necessarily being virtuous in the time that they are reading those things it just doesn't carry over to the rest of their lives yeah well there's this you know this is a weird sense i think oh and i i should say that you know they're they we're tapping into the distinction between doing a virtuous act and being virtuous not the same thing yeah well okay so even then you've got and this is c.s lewis i think is who i owe for this distinct this 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 point which is that um evil 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 requires good to to act right so you think about really basic goods like the transcendentals right in order for something to harm you it has to have being mm -hmm. right things have to have um you know what and 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 the the greater the let's say non-moral virtues um the greater its capacity for damage and c.s lewis says something like a bad dog can do so much harm a bad man can do much worse and a bad angel inconceivably great harm mm -hmm. and so there's this very strange sense in which it's these natural virtues and capacities of of agents in this world that actually i, I mean you know to go back to the concentration camps or i mean because for for many obvious reasons, you know, we basically just work this stuff out with the Third Reich. If we're trying to figure this stuff out, it's like, I, I we, know, always, it's, we always go back recent. to the Third Reich. Everyone can agree on it. <laughs> and it sort of operates on a mythological level, too. Yeah. And so, you know, the concentration camps would have lost their horror. They would if they had there had been bad administrators. Right. Part of the horror of the of the concentration camps is the efficiency, mm. the sort of low level prudence let's say that the the administrators of those camps showed Be, they were orderly mm -hmm. they they were disciplined and and they're i think part of the horror right it's not just the absolutely senseless death but it's this like how can you have those kinds of virtues live so close to such moral depravity i i mean there's a lot there and so but we're, we're getting kind of away from narrative so let's yeah. let's get let's swing back around and so so the thread that we were the thread that we were working on, and I and I've actually been doing some thinking and writing about this, was something like good stories are ones that let us see how virtue plays out. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And it plays out in a in a couple of ways. One is Okay, oh, let, let me go back a little bit further. Because I think about this is one of the things that I think about all the time. Which is that our one of the one of the main contenders for state virtue ethics in history is consequentialism, which is if I ex act in X manner and you know, there's Y outcome, I know what my action meant. Mm -hmm. And the whole problem is to that point about framing at the beginning. Well, what do you mean it led to Y? <laughs> yeah. You know, again. Where do you stop? Where do you where do you stop? It's well, I, you know, I was patient with my wife and she still got mad at me. So it must be bad for me to be patient. You know, being patient with her doesn't, doesn't work. It's like, <laughs> well, what do you mean exactly? <laughs> like, it's, it's not about Tuesday. Your marriage, you practicing virtue in your marriage isn't about Tuesday. Um, it's about the whole thing. And so, so that's one way. One way is stories are, let narratives let us see how these virtuous action plays out over a much larger scale 
look, you and I think I don't know. Did you and I ever talk about this? I know there's this when we were growing up and being homeschooled. There were you know, we'd hear stuff about from other people. Oh, my life was great, and I went to public school. So why do you care about homes being homeschooled or something like that? And the realization that you can't run your life in these sort of parallel tests. You can't do an A B test where like one of them Ted was homeschooled and another one everything will remain constant but Ted went to public school. Everything else remained constant but Ted went to public school. Mm -hmm. You just you have the one you have each day and that's it. And so you don't get to run your life in parallel to make to, to make decisions. Because even if you there are these cyclical patterns to life, but in the end you're not actually coming back to the same place. Uh -huh. You have your past, you have less of your future. You're in this whole process of moving from potential potentiality to actuality, right? Obviously when your life is over, you've gone entirely from potential to actual and that's it. And there's your life. And so then the question of how do I make decisions in that you're not, this is part of why consequentialism fails because you can't isolate. The whole idea there is that your actions produce immediate effects, immediate invisible effects. Uh -huh. But even if you're going to take that, you can't isolate all the variables in your life. Because all the important interact, well, first of all, one of the most important interactions you're having are with people, <laughs> right? Yes. And so if I treated you a certain way three times before, the fourth time isn't like I never treated you those other three ways before. Well, and consequentialism it, just ignores the fact that there's so much we don't know. Right, right. And so, and so that's, that, it's that part, which I, again, I come back to Job all the time about this, but like, <laughs> that's why I think it's so important. And then. Okay, so. So that is an interesting angle on the idea of the plot twist. Mm, okay. Why do we like stories that have plot twists, but yes. not too much of plot twists? Because then they're just annoying. At least I find them so. Because they become non sequiturs. Yeah. Did I did I bring up with you uh, this? There's a philosopher, a contemporary philosopher named Dr. D.C. Schindler, who's a he he he's there's a. I think a Catholic philosopher that, or theologian that he's read a lot, Von Balthasar, something like this. Hans Von Balthasar. Hans Von Balthasar. And von Balth Hans Von Balthasar's um, use of the word drama. This is sounding okay. vague. Okay, okay, so I'm getting all of this from D.C. Schindler. But, so I don't know the context that this is in, but it's still really meaningful. Balthasar, von Balthasar um, defines drama as the simultaneous simultaneity of resolution and surprise uh-huh which i okay. completely love and so he drama in the sense of a good drama like a good narrative not uh -huh. drama in the sense of two people being in conflict so it's it's the way that your expectations about things are resolved in a way that exceeds your that like exceeds your expectations uh-huh and what you're i think with a plot twist, what you're talking about there, there's this place where, because you you have to have both for it to be interesting. Because if uh -huh. it's just constantly exceeding your expectation, if it's constantly surprise, and you lose this sort of, uh, it's holding together. It, it it ceases to hold together because say there's an expectation that the things that were told, introduced early on, are going to be brought in later. Right. The the things, the things earlier on matter. Right. And they're going to have an effect on the end of the story. So, I I, I mean, I, I love... But if it's purely what we expect, then... Well, why pay attention to it? Yeah, why pay attention to why it? Why pay attention to it? We already know it. 
So I, I think I when you when people talk, you know, when you brought up plot twist, the first thing that came to my mind, of course, is you catastrophe. Tolkien's idea of oh, catastrophe. The first thing that came to my mind was Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> Those are not you catastrophes. Well, so so let's can if we can if we can work with the you catastrophe for a little bit. No, I think they're okay. I, I think we can bring I think we can bring Agatha Christie's plot twist into the you catastrophe. And the way that I mean, I'm gonna... the plot twist is when, if you want to call it a you catastrophe, is when uh, when Hercule Poirot figures out how he's going to bring about justice. Yes, and so 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 I've been I actually haven't been able to find this where he says this, but there's a I think there's a passage in the Summa Theologia, but maybe it's somewhere else in Thomas's corpus, or he goes through this fascinating argument for the beatific vision, where he says that. The deepest delight that people have is in knowing causes, mm-hmm. and so he walks through this: the greater the the greater the explanatory nature of a cause, the greater the delight we have in it. And God, as the cause of all causes, is therefore the greatest is that which everyone wants. And so, I I think that would you, and you're, you're familiar enough with the you the idea of the catastrophe that we can kind of just talk about it. Yes, but maybe our listeners aren't. So why don't you give it a so this is second recap. the fifteen second recap is in Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, which is extraordinarily excellent, and everyone should read it if they have any interest in stories. The at the end he introduces an idea called the eucatastrophe, which is Greek for the good catastrophe, eu catastrophia. So I don't ask me to parse eu eu yes pronounced eu like um well there's a bunch of things like the Eucharist right um eudaimonia things like that it's good it means good and true and so this idea is the, the that thing in fairy stories where all of a sudden there's usually at a really low point it intrinsically and unexpectedly breaks through it's it's in it's it's in the nature of the story to all of a sudden break through and yet it still like makes your heart jump and maybe makes uh, tears to come to your eyes and when you recognize that that Tolkien thinks that this is um, like the very heart of fairy story, and then you read the Lord of the Rings, you'll see it very, very clearly. And I would actually, <laughs> I think that Tolkien may have written some of the best catastrophes in the recent Western canon. Um, and so, so that's what the catastrophe is. It's that sudden switch out of the darkness into this beautifully brilliant resolution. Um, and and so I think that the plot twist in Agatha Christie is something like a you catastrophe of of understanding. So you're walking through this muddled. You've got all these details. You don't know how it fits together. The whole thing is incoherent and 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 cloudy. It or to take the language of Ecclesiastes, it's it's hevel. It's all mist. It doesn't fit together. And then and you you don't think it can right? There's like usually I've only read one or two Agatha Christies, but like there's this impossibility. Right? Mm-hmm. How can you resolve it? There's an impossibility. It's like it's as though rationality is the the sort of the the orderedness of the world is is missing. It's failing. Is failing. It's falling apart, and we're in chaos. And then Hercule, Hercule Poirot comes in all of a sudden and says, "Aha! Here it is!" And the whole thing just comes together. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you see you see all the causes, and now the world makes sense again. The world is no longer a place of of this chaos where anything could happen, and you know people are in the wrong places or they die for no reason. Right? Isn't that sort of like yeah. maybe the deep one of the deepest horrors that you could just die? 
Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> wow, this is so interesting. Is this why we love murder mysteries? Not because of the gruesomeness, but because we're, we're trying to be consoled that even death is meaningful. That there's even a cause to, our, to death. Do you think, do you buy that? I don't know if I buy that, but it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. Um, let's see. A cause for death. I think that there's a strong appeal of just the sensation in, yeah. in a lot yeah. of it. And it depends on the, the story, too, I think. But I think that's fair to say of the the better detective fiction that... Okay. That on, a, on a narrative level, a narratively satisfying detective story is about bringing order well not okay here's part of what's interesting it's not about bringing order Mm -hmm. it's about revealing order in apparent chaos yes the order was already there yes the story is about uncovering it okay so (laughs) i love this okay so think about think about what happens with the breakdown of the sort of medieval Christian view of the universe, which, contrary to some people's beliefs, was extremely ordered. That this is you know, Lewis's point in the discarded image is uh-huh. that the medievals believed in a, in a universe that was fundamentally more ordered than ours. Way more ordered than ours. Yeah. And with with the movement sort of through in, in the Enlightenment into the into the late scientific industrial period and say the 1800s, you have, uh, it seems like there's this sort of as we're able to see more order in the mechanics of the physical aspect of the universe, there's a break, there starts to be a breakdown in the like meaning full order of the universe. Hmm. And that's well. And then you also have, you have all sorts of things that come up with that, like the rise of really big cities and think about London and Paris starting to get really big and how Sherlock Holmes, so much of Sherlock Holmes is going on in the sort of, the seething populace of London. There's a sort of endless chaos to, to Sherlock Holmes London. You could always just go somewhere. There doesn't uh-huh. seem to be really an end to the city. And I wonder if the part of the reason that we have the rise, because Wilkie, Collin, right, Wilkie Collins is the first sort of modern detective story. I think he's, Isn't yeah, that the usually. 1860s, 1870s? Right about there, yeah. Okay, so, and there's this, it, I mean, you could at least tell the story this way that and listen to what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> yes. It's, it's as we end up, we start to move into this world where there's less and less, um, we we're less and less able to see meaning in say the interaction of people. Well, you even have like the, you're, you're there's like a loss of ceremony and right public ritual. Like those things are, those things are starting to go away. And I think there, we, we start to have this need for, order in in the lives of men more and it but here okay because here's my argument and and this might, might have to do you might just say okay well this is about just our, our love for justice too but if it was just about the sensationalism think about the degree of popularity for detective stories versus stories from the point of view of a murderer right if it was about the sensationalism we don't really care that much about like, hearing how someone killed someone that's not, mm-hmm. we don't, that's not the story we're interested in. We're interested in how does it all come together? How does, how does the seemingly, look, I, I'm thinking about the summer that I spent living in, in the New York City area. And 
if you stop, and, and, and this is not original to me at all, but if you stop and think about the, <laughs> the unimaginable number of individual threads of human lives that you can come in, con in the, you know, this bare degree of contact with just walking down the street. Mm -hmm. It's like 5,000 people right there. How on earth do you fit that all together? There's, there's no point of coherence. We're not all, you know, going to church together and participating in something like that. There's not even really a civic liturgy at all. We're all just doing stuff. How, 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 how do those worlds all fit together? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, I guess I'm starting to, I'm sort trying to work yeah. towards, does, is, do we like the detective story, the murder mystery, because, because the first part of it is how our lives feel so much of the time where these things come in and then they leave and we don't see why they were there and then they're gone. And, and then the, the murder mystery pulls it all together in this aha moment, sort of von Balthasarian drama of expectation that there's an order to everything. But surprise, because we never we don't know what the details. We are. never could have yeah. seen how that would happen. Okay, and I almost think that you may get something of a similar appeal from a very different angle in something like a Charles Dickens novel. The thing yeah. that strikes me about Dickens when I read him, and I haven't read all that many of his novels, maybe five, but he seems particularly interested in sort of cross-cutting society mm -hmm. and these different levels of society. And it, it takes different forms. Like in Great Expectations, Pip rises through these levels. And that's how we see them. One person moving through them. Yeah. In others like Bleak House, you have these different layers of society that come together and interact at these different intersection points. But I think what's satisfying there is that in this kind of, well, it's kind of a structured chaos of society, right? Yeah. That the narrative gives us the opportunity then to follow those points out. So you don't just see the vagabond once, you find yeah. out what happened to him. So... <laughs> <laughs> I think I brought up this reading this pair of novels together, um, The Name of the Rose and then A Canticle for Leibowitz, back mm -hmm. to back. And well, what's interesting is The Name of the Rose is a postmodern detective novel, right? And so there's this pattern oh, of yeah. deaths. Okay. And then the big reveal at the end is there was no pattern of deaths. Most of them were accidents. And then some guy thought, oh, hey, you know, I could kind of pick up on this pattern. And then the whole thing is mean. And, and, and it destroys the story as such. Okay, so that's the name of the rose, and I and I despise it as a story. I think the first, and again, we're talking about framing, right? He just he, there's this, there's this great narrative, this satisfying narrative, and then the last you know, twentieth of it just wrecks it all. A can, a, oh. a, and then I was just gonna say, so a Canticle for Leibowitz actually feels like it's the, going in the opposite direction. We have it's written in three different times that are six hundred each six hundred years apart. And you're like, and it's almost, it feels like a vignette of this um, post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear apocalypse future. And then the last five pages of it bring the whole thing together so satisfying, in such a satisfying manner. And it, and, and, and so what's interesting about that is it's the 12, it's the fact that it takes place over 1200 years that actually adds to that to say, oh, 
there's there's the possibility of this coherence and this resolution over a time span that is vastly greater than my own life. Uh-huh. So, at any rate, you, I, I hope that yeah. didn't derail where you're going too much. No. A, a thought experiment. What if the name of the rose had ended before that ending? Mm-hmm. So, it didn't have an alternate ending. It just ended earlier, before he had done this reveal that there is no reveal, mm-hmm. basically. Is the resolution necessary to a good narrative? I would think probably yes, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in the narrative itself. Because I think that what would happen if you cut it off earlier, and I haven't read the book, mm-hmm. is that you would continue to assume, mm. consciously or unconsciously, that there's a pattern. Yes. And that there is a resolution that you might or might not be able to come up with. Yes. But that it's there. Which is... Yeah. I, so, I, I think I think maybe so. I'd have, to, I'd have to think exactly where, you know, the editor would come in and cut the back end of it off. But, yeah, there's something... Uh, and I... And I and I think if I sat here for you know, another two minutes, I could come up, I could actually give you some examples of some stories that are like that. Well, it, Brothers K is kind of like that, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. Yes, it is. It's very much like that. Yeah, there's um, uh, Yvonne's, not Yvonne. Um, oh, no, it's the oldest brother. Oh, what's his Dimitri. Name? Dimitri's story is very much like that, right? He's had his condemnation and then, spoiler alert, he's, you know, he's accused of a crime he didn't commit and then they're gonna they're gonna sneak him out to america and then that's it <laughs> they're, and this is like alios is paying someone you know bringing the money to someone who can do this and then that's basically and then the curtain the curtains close on the story mm-hmm. um, but we assume that it's going to resolve and it's going to resolve in a, a way that has meaning that's not an arbitrary Arbitrary morass of events. Right, because that isn't a story. That's not a story, <laughs> yes. Right, so, okay, so, all right, so. But, okay, so that's interesting. We we assume that the, the narrative shape continues beyond the narrative itself. And I think this is why. That's what Sam's saying. Somewhat. Uh, the stories of, just keep, go- keep I'm, I'm on going. I'm going more okay. back to our last topic. Okay. Justice. Okay. Which is why I think that that theory applies to narratives that take place over a short amount of time, but that take a long time to tell. Okay. That because it has been presented in such a way that the shape of the, the amount of the story that we have mm. has shape. That is enough to sort of propel itself into what happens beyond the story. Beyond yes. the story proper. Yes. Because there is a, in almost, in any, in any story, I don't know, I'd have to think about this. All the stories I can think of, they're all embedded in right, the story. Uh-huh. And so you, right, you, if you know what's going on, if you know what stories are like, then yeah, you... You can see how they go. This is, there, there's a there's a certain shape to them. So now here's my here's my question: Do we do we see virtue in stories, or are stories shaped like the virtues? 
Right. Which way does it go? Do we find a story compelling because it makes sense of the virtues in the real world or in the, in, in the world? Is, like, is that the definition of what makes a good story? That's what I'm wondering. Like, is, do we say, oh, that's a good story because we see how fortitude plays out or how justice plays out or how temperance plays out? Like, is... Um, I'm just... Because I'm... It, it start, I it, don't... Hmm. Well, let me... I don't know that it is the definition of a good story. Of a coherent story? I think it may be what it... About a coherent story, possibly about a true story. But what I'm thinking about is... The Sun Also Rises, which we talked about briefly last time. Yeah. It's a well-written book. It's a classic. Uh-huh. And I find it really dreary. Yeah. Because of what it seems to be saying about justice when everybody sort of ends up in basically the same place. Except for one character whose situation is substantially worse. Um, fortitude. I mean, these people are just drifting along. Can I ask you what you mean by can you or to elaborate on what you, when you say that the story is dreary? It. Don't 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 defend it. Just explain it. Yeah, just like elaborate on that. The the best way I can describe it, I think, is basically what I said last time, which is just the the book just makes me feel tired when I read it. Mentally tired, oh. not like a mental workout. But, like, I am partaking in the characters being tired of life. So, Jordan... Even you... when they don't actually talk like they are, that is, the, that is the emotional participation that I find in the characters. So, so Jordan, Jordan Peterson says this thing where he says that positive emotion isn't possible unless you have somewhere that you're headed. The positive emotion, you you feel positive emotion when you have a goal. Mm -hmm. And you feel like you've moved. When you, when you think that you've moved towards your goal, that's where positive emotion comes from. He says that basically definitionally. You have to have a unified. And so this, he talks about this in the sense of polytheism versus monotheism. That there has to be something up at the very top. Because if there's more than one thing at the very top, then you can never choose which one you're aiming at. And then you just, you can't ever feel sure that you've you're headed somewhere hmm. which is it's a it's a weird sort of psychological argument for monotheism yeah um so so that's when you said tired i thought that was really interesting because if there's not if you're not headed somewhere that's recognizably somewhere you want to get it if there's even if you're just moving away from not that, because there's other stories, right? And they're not like, we're going to the golden land. It's we're trying to get out of hell. Uh-huh. And, and when you're talking about that, about the sun also rises, the story that came to my mind is, uh, the pearl by, um, who wrote East of Eden? Steinbeck. John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck. Yeah. The pearl by John Steinbeck. Have you read it? Mm -mm. It's a novella. It's, I mean, the, <laughs> The brief story is there some Mexican pearl divers and the husband finds the pearl of all pearls and it, then they get caught in this just web of horrible stuff 
where they're being tricked and people are trying to swindle them and they end up fleeing with their child into the desert and being tracked by because the powers that be have now sort of swung the events so that it looks like they're you know outlaws and they're going to try to you know bring them in for justice and of course take the pearl from them mm-hmm. and and all this and then it ends up with their 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 child dying in the middle of this and they come back to the town and the dad just throws the pearl into the ocean and so they're back where they started but they've lost their precious child like that's the story uh-huh and but i don't think about that and say oh that wasn't a story or that wasn't a good story like i didn't uh-huh. like what happened but it's it was still a good story because well, for one thing, because it made me rail against the injustice of all the things that were happening <laughs> in it, you know, to your point. But, uh, yeah, maybe that's just some good nuance, right? There's, there's a, you can have good stories in that sense that don't necessarily point you in the positive direction. They might turn you away from the negative, mm-hmm. right, of these things like intemperance or imprudence or injustice, right? You can, now... Is it good for your soul to feed primarily on those stories? Definitely not. <laughs> like there's, you know, well, prudence would tell you not to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, prudence would tell you not to. And and so, okay, so, but I want to get back to this idea that uh, that I'm trying to get at now. Where there, I think there's like, there's almost like a correspondence between the shape of a virtue, the virtues, the cardinal virtues and stories. But what do you mean by the shape of the virtue? That's what I'm trying. Yeah, I want to know what you mean by that. <laughs> I would also like to know. Okay. So something Let's work like it out. So, okay, but because it, it's something like how the virtue. Okay, because a virtue is, according to Aristotle, it's a stable disposition. It's a habit. It's a habit, right? It's a, it's a habit, which a habit necessitates time. Mm-hmm. In order for something to be habitual, it has to be taking place over time. And so it's something like, is a good story something like, this is what happens when you run this virtue out through time. That's what I, I guess what I mean by the shape of it. I, I, I think about, because I, you can think of it as a habit, but you could also think of it as like, as a pattern, right? The virtues are something like a pattern that is contextual. It's a contextual pattern, but it's recognizable. It's both context. It's context. It, it's like the way a tree grows, right? So, like a mm-hmm. a pine tree. So a, a pine tree story is one that looks like what happens when a man is prudent over time. Is that what you're saying? Something like that. Something like that. And then part of the reason we like different stories is because you could. To, I'm just going to keep working with this analogy and see how far it gets us. You can take a pine tree and you plant it, uh, say, up on up on top of a mountain where there's very little soil and there's some rock and it grows into a pine tree but it's you know it's this 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 short tree that's kind of stubby and you know but it can weather the storms and mm-hmm. drought and then you take it's got fortitude it's got fortitude well then you take that same pine and you plant it down in the bottoms and what does it do it shoots up you know and with and it's it's this 90 foot tall tree with this beautiful straight trunk um <laughs> And then it comes along and it's clear cut. And then it comes along and it's clear cut. We're not, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, the point is this tree is growing in these different things. But, and so if you just saw the pine tree in the bottoms over and over and over, you'd think this is what a pine tree is. Mm-hmm. But then, 
And if you just saw it up on the mountaintop, you'd think this is what a pine tree is. But it's when you've gone and you've seen it growing up on a hill and in someone's front yard and then and in, down in down in the bottoms and on a mountainside and and in a plantation. <laughs> this is just this is making me think about a, a year or so ago. I read a Walter Scott novel called The Antiquary, and there was a character in there that I felt like was our maternal grandfather if he had been a Scottish gentleman in the late 1700s. <laughs> <laughs> like, I felt like I'd seen him growing in a different environment. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I mean, that's... I, yeah, I love that. I... Okay. So, I want to I wanna go back to this idea that part of the reason that we love the murder mysteries is because it's this sort of it's the bringing things back together i think that there's some of that impetus too behind this modern like crossover cinematic universe thing ah okay where there's this desire Uh... to see how all the stories fit together oh i love this story over here and i love this story over here and i love this story over here but they don't fit but then if you cram say captain america and black panther and iron man all in a movie together then all of a sudden oh this is how they all fit together but that's not about the resolution of the stories is it okay no that's true i I think it's a different kind of coherence that's right it's not a narrative coherence it's a what is it it's an environmental coherence something like (laughs) that yeah okay no 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 I, i i'll accept that okay i'm just i'm just because I'm think I, I I think, yeah, and 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 the other reason that's probably different is because in some sense it doesn't teach us how to. I think okay, because because we've we've talked about the cardinal virtues a bunch, and there's you know as Christians there's also another set of virtues, which are the theological virtues. Faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, and charity. Right. There's this. I this is how I think of this is this is another really important part of stories i think which is and i'm going to use faith here in a slightly looser sense than say maybe it's technically used I think by, we've been using all of these terms in slightly looser in senses. slightly looser senses which is fine because because there's this look when i think about how we need to act in the world there there's the the, the cardinal virtues and there's another thing which says that i should keep acting in a virtuous manner when i don't see how it all fits together mm-hmm. and that's something like faith Although, or hope. And is anti-consequentialist. And is anti-consequentialist. And it's also sort of anti-empirical. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's this higher level on which this is what is sort of the basic, the most basic role that narratives play in our lives, which is that they instill... The capacity to stand in a place of non-resolution. They give us practice with that. They give us practice with that. That's yeah, exactly. So the weird, it's, it's kind of one of those weird twists because you think, oh well, you know, because I, I don't know if you've heard this, but I feel like I've picked up the sort of postmodern, late modern, and postmodern sort of disgust with stories that have resolution, and that's not how life really is. Uh-huh. Life is messy. It's full of loose threads and loose ends and things don't really come together. And 
I, <laughs> I think that's exactly why we tell stories because that's where we live. We don't, we're not telling. So in that sense, like stories are not meant to mirror our lives. Uh-huh. They're meant to do something. They're meant to illuminate our lives. They're yeah. meant to show us. They're not, they don't reflect our lives back to us. They show us part of our, they're supposed to show us part of our lives that we don't see and actually can't see in many cases. And remind us that it's actually there. That it's actually there. Right. That, that is, and, and so, okay, because I think, I think that it's extraordinarily difficult to act on based on propositions for most people. What do you, I, I don't know what you think of that. Explain what you mean. Um, like, okay, fact, fact statements. You, oh, here's. Ah, uh, okay. It's basically the idea that if we just had the right information, then we would act correctly. Yes. And John Verveke has got a fascinating, Dr. John Verveke has got a fascinating story about this from some psychologists who went and, um, they went to all these <laughs> college professors. So you'd think the people that are like, that are going to be best capable of doing that to integrate information into their lives, right? That's their whole job is to integrate information. And they went to them and said, here are the facts on why you should save for retirement. Right now. You should start saving for retirement now. And they came back a year later and no one had changed their saving habits. They had another set of people where they said, they sat down and they said, I want you to imagine yourself when you're old and I want you to, I want you to picture it and like tell a story about that and imagine that person as a, as a family member that you love. You, and, and, and what they found is, is and then they, they'd asked them some stuff about, you know, how vivid was that? And I, I don't know if it was, they asked them how vivid it was or they like wrote something out. Mm-hmm. But it was something like the more detail that they went into in that exercise, when they came back a year later, that was an incredibly strong predictor of how, first of all, the people who did that exercise actually did start saving for retirement. Uh-huh. And the, the vividness with which they participated in it was a very strong predictor for how much they, how much of their, what percent of their income they saved. Interesting. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I mean, I think that's really interesting. So, and so then I think about something like the difference between, um, oh, you shouldn't drink soft drinks and, you know, my grandfather Picture died of diabetes. diabetes. Yes. Or someone I know, you know, died of diabetes. Mm-hmm. Those are really, really different. And so I think what's interesting is... <laughs> So there's this weird thing where I think you have people who say in their professional or academic lives would assert the world doesn't cohere. There's no underlying meaning to it. Things like that. And yet they like cling to, they cling to stories. Mm-hmm. And it's like they believe them in spite of themselves and they run through that's them. That's absolutely true. And yeah, because, well, okay. <laughs> that's not, I mean, it's the classic. Yeah. It's the classic paradox of the novel that's written to show that narrative is meaningless. Yeah, like the name of the rose. Yeah. <laughs> right, the name of, like the name of the rose. So there's this, so maybe call that like a lower, it's like a non-supernatural faith. Like maybe it's a supernatural faith. I don't know. It's a non-theological faith. I'll put it that way. Okay. There's something like, so maybe my, my, my thesis at this point, this is maybe how far I've gotten it, is that. The, the primary role of narrative in our lives is the exercise of non-theological faith. So what's interesting is, and I don't know if you and I have talked about this in, there's like a common set of prayers in like Catholic devotions and maybe, maybe outside of it. It's just, this is my experience of the act of, it's a prayer that's the act of faith, the prayer that's an act of hope and the prayer that's an act of charity. 
Yeah, I'm not familiar with this outside. Okay. So, like, the act of hope, the, the one that I know is, oh, my God, I firmly believe in one God and three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I believe in Jesus Christ, the true and only Son of God, who's born of the Virgin Mary and suffered on the cross, who was born of the Mary, Virgin Mary and died on the cross for our salvation. I also believe all these, all the sacred truths the Catholic Church believes and teaches because thou hast revealed them, who canst neither deceive nor be deceived. And, the, and then there's one for, the, for, for hope and for charity. And the idea is that by rehearsing what these virtues are when, where it's not obviously practicable like the way fortitude is maybe i don't know you could argue about charity well i don't want to get into that discussion there's all <laughs> there's all but but the idea is you're like telling yourself what it means to like to have faith in this prayer mm-hmm. and when you and i it it strikes me that that's doing on the supernatural level with it what's going on in the natural level because you're telling yourself, like, basically, I believe, say, in the language that we've been using to talk, and particularly talking about the, 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 the cardinal virtues, is something like, I firmly believe that it's better to act prudently, justly, uh, temperately, and with fortitude than not, mm-hmm. even though I can't see it. And so then you, and then you, and then you do it over and over and over again, and then, this, the drama, the von Balthasarian drama comes in. And this is why we like it and the plot twist so much. So here, this is coming back to your plot twist, I think. I think the reason that we like the plot twist so much is because of how often those things don't seem to be playing out. Mm-hmm. And the plot twist is the thing that says, look, look, look. There's this whole part of the story. That you haven't seen. That you haven't seen and it could come in at any moment. Uh-huh. And then you would see. And then you would see why it was worthwhile. So that's your that's your basic theory yeah. about the primary role of narrative. Yes. But do you want to add an adjective before narrative? Because it seems to me like there are plenty of narratives that don't actually teach that. Oh, okay. Yes, I do. Um Good <laughs> Good narratives. I mean come on, but right, that's begging the question, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It well, yeah. Or okay. Do other narratives have the same role when rightly understood, which doesn't necessarily mean understood the way their authors understood them. Maybe so. I I mean this is weird because now we're getting really close to this thing I that have, I don't think that there are compelling narratives out there that. <sighs> You just, you end up in, like, boys' adventure land as soon as you start reading narratives about robbers that prosper on desert islands and never are brought to justice. Yeah, but, 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 no, the thing is that even those stories, the ones that people like are the ones where the robber has a code of ethics. That it adheres to when it doesn't True. make sense. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't think people like stories that are do they like stories that are just about wrongdoing and have no... there's well i mean a- that... and that show wrongdoing rewarded look yeah there's the one movie the one movie that i can think of that i've seen that's like that is this woody allen movie and it's the only woody, woody allen movie i've ever seen i would never watch it again and i can't remember what it's called but it's about this this culturally jewish man in new york who's having an affair and his 
his lover is basically like wanting him to you know make make it public and and, and all this stuff so he kills her because he doesn't want his nice life ruined and then he keeps expecting there to be some retribution from god because his like jewish upbringing keeps bringing that to mind but then nothing happens wow okay that sounds like a terrible movie it is now there's another movie <laughs> that's that bit like the experience of watching is even worse and i would i would never watch it again and i would never recommend it i watched i was in in a, in my film course in at university and it's called the graduate and it's about this young man who lives he's like just out of college and he has no purpose in life and he's philandering and it basically what it ends up with is he this young woman that he's after is going to like make a pretty good decision and marry her college sweetheart and he comes like while they're about to get married and manages to convince her to run off with him and the whole thing looks like it's it's going to be this you know they're running off together she's in her in her her wedding gown and they're running to catch this bus and they've got this elated look on their face and the whole story feels like it feels like it's driving towards that you know his acts this sort of undisciplined unstructured just totally led by whatever is whatever demon is in him it's going to be rewarded by the fact that he goes off into the sunset with this young lady that he's stolen away from a stable good life mm -hmm. and they <laughs> the camera follows them to the back of the bus and they sit down in the back of the bus and they're sitting there and then after about five seconds they both get this expression on their face and you know they both know that deep down inside they're going to be just as miserable and bored for the rest of their lives and it cuts to black mm. <laughs> so I don't think that we like stories. I think you can be a sick person. I think that you can be a, you can be an unhealthy person that likes just hearing about wrongdoing and just following wrongdoing. But in the same way that people innately know things about the world, like this, I'm pulling from Daniel Toma here. People just know that the world has order to it that the, there's like the law of non-contradiction um, that holes are greater than the sum of the parts that these are things that we just know upon contact with reality mm -hmm. there are things that we know upon contact with with stories everyone everywhere always even the the sort of nihilistic stories except in this sort of like sick rarefied what's the what's the word that they use decadence mm -hmm. That we just know. And, and I think you could even look at it. It's not the people who are downtrodden and beat up and suffering injustice that like those stories. It's the people who have no necessity in their life that like the stories of or spend any time with. I'll say spend any time with the stories of whatever. No internal, no internal structure like that. I think it's the people who are out there doing things and you know they may they may be immoral themselves i mean this is the fascinating you thing know, oh, i'm sorry oh i was just gonna say the fascinating like i spend time with people who live who live bad lives a lot of the time and <laughs> what's weird is like you know they're just rough people but mm -hmm. like when they tell stories there's they totally expect justice well you know what strikes me is that those stories 
may be, I don't know, should I say entertaining yeah. to people, but they don't actually feel like stories. We can call them narratives in the sense of a sequence of events, but if something doesn't resolve, I just, I think it just doesn't count as a story. I, I agree with that. So, so, okay. So it, it could resolve theoretically in that every source of possible retribution is somehow done away with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that generally doesn't happen. <laughs> and so as long as there is any possible way for for action to be rewarded or or punished or whatever you like you still haven't reached the end of the story yes and so the woody allen right so the woody allen movie right in his framing of it he says the story's over now but the main character is still alive. The main character is still alive. There's still all it's sorts the of things. Right? There's all sorts <laughs> of things. Even if you write are... off the possibility of God. There's all sorts of... Yes, right. So so to contrast that with, say, A Canticle for Leibowitz, right? Where he says, hey, the story's over because, you know, a month passed. That's <laughs> like... That's not that's not clever <laughs> storytelling. That's naive storytelling. Yes. Where, where with A Canticle for Leibowitz, it says, yeah... Wait 1,200 years and you'll see what that seed that was planted in the ground grows into. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'll end this with, with something that I have been mulling over. And I don't have, I can't like lay this out yet. But, so there's this, this we've kind of been hinting at this the whole time. In order for us, for us to recognize a story as a story, it, it has to be seen as a whole. Mm-hmm. And we find a much greater degree of satisfaction in stories that bring together things that we, let's say, would be have a hard time believing could be brought together. Would you agree with that? There are these that if you just laid them out, someone, this I'm happened. gonna put this together, this together, and this together. They yeah. they ask how. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To take the Lord of the Rings, right? You've got, oh, I'm going to tell a story about how this this these four little creatures who are basically twelve year old people are going to overcome basically Satan. No, I'll tell you the real example of that is up. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's a great that, yeah that's a great one. An old man and a boy scout get blown off into the blue. In a, house. in a house that's held up with balloons, they get blown to a waterfall where a crazy man and a blimp is going to chase them with some dogs, and there's a giant, like, peacock-colored ostrich. And... Yeah. You, okay, w- hold on. <laughs> okay, so, I, I've been... But there is something where you can end up where you can say, that is a story. And the better the story is, the more necessary every single part is. There's a thinker named Taleb, I think? All of those elements become very necessary in that part. Taleb, that's his name. He wrote a book called Black Swan. And I remember a guy in front of me in an airplane reading it. And I was reading over his shoulder. <laughs> and there's a little thing where he says, Matt Taleb, is that? I can't remember his name. It's Taleb. Anyway, he, at the end, he says one of the ways to, one of the ways to think about how good a story is, is, or a book is, he said book, not stories, books are, is how much of the book you can remove without meaningfully diminishing it. So he said, most business books can be 
taken down to one or two sentences without any meaningful loss of information. <laughs> In contrast to an excellent novel where you cannot remove one word without losing something from it. Uh-huh. So, stories more broadly, you can't, I would say the better the story is, the less you can lose, every single element of it means something. So there's this something about the story as a story, like by definition, that means that the elements are cohering together into some sort of whole that's greater than the sum of all the parts. And it does it in a way that I think is deeply analogous to persons. The way that a person, hypostatic, we, I mean, the term hypostatic is, I always hear in terms of theology and the divine nature and the human nature of Christ are united hypostatically in this person. But that's, that's apparently a term that's just, you can use that for meaning within a person. Okay. And so... I had this interesting conversation with someone where they're talking about someone they knew who was this sort of strange, apparent contradiction of say, I can't remember what it was, but I can think of someone in my own life like this, like a linebacker that I, I was living in the same building as he was this enormous man from Hawaii at the university. And he, you know, when I shook hands with him, I couldn't see my hand. He was so big. (laughs) He was just a, he was a refrigerator. But then when I'd come back from campus, I would watch him following squirrels around. And you're like, there's a contradiction in the fact that this man is throwing himself against other 300 pound men, just like trying to wrestle them to the ground with sheer strength. And yet he also has the gentleness that makes him want to watch a squirrel, see Mm -hmm. what a squirrel is up to. But it is united in his person. And so I think there's some really profound connection between the way that stories bring together these things and the way that persons bring together these things. And so I, I love this, this thread that we've been following of this coherence of narrative through virtue, because I think that the argument has been made a lot of times that the more virtuous a person is, the more integrated and coherent they are as a person. Mm. So there's something about virtues and persons and stories that are, let's say, how reality holds together, how it becomes a coherent, a whole. Um, so I'm, if you've got any other things that you want to say to that, that's, that's kind of where I want to leave it. That's about as far as I can take it in my own mind right now. I'll just tag on to that, that, that particularly you know, my original theory was about justice, so that's probably why I keep coming back to that. It's the <laughs> one I've thought about the most. But but thinking in terms of virtue as integration, mm-hmm. if you have if you have a narrative that brings everything at the end to what is due, then you basically have by definition included everything. Mm. Every element of it is resolved into its place. Yes. Which is what we all want. Amen. 